Welcome to Council 4 Unplugged, the podcast of our Council 4 AFSCME union. We are 30,000 strong throughout the state of Connecticut. I'm Larry Dorman of Council 4, and along with me, our co-host, Renee Hamill. Hi, Renee. Hi. It's good to have you aboard. This is our first podcast uh, since uh, the COVID-19 crisis uh, that swept this nation and our state. And we're going to be talking about COVID-19 today, but we're also talking about it through the prism of Workers' Memorial Day. It's an annual remembrance uh, started by the National AFL-CIO, and virtual ceremonies took place all across the country today, including Connecticut. And with me are two safety, health and safety advocates, uh, Steve Schrag, and Steve is the co-chair of the Connecticut Council on Occupational Safety and Health. Welcome aboard, Steve. Good afternoon, Larry and Renee. And also with us is Mike Fitz, who is the executive director of Connecticut. And Mike, we're really happy to have you on Council Forum Plug. Thanks for taking time. Thank you. So Pleasure to be here. Yeah, um, we're glad to have you. And let, let's get right into it. As we tape this podcast, Again, it is April 28th, and that is a national day of remembrance called Workers Memorial Day. And perhaps, Steve, uh, you were good enough to join us at our virtual ceremony this morning at our headquarters in New Britain, where we have a monument to uh, AFSCME members who have died on the job. Could you tell our listeners what Workers Memorial Day is all about and why it's important? Well, 50 years ago this year, uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Act was passed, which gives private sector workers protections from some of the worst hazards on the job. It was passed because of the struggle of lots of workers for many years. It finally was passed in 1970. And as I said, it covers all private sector workers or most private sector workers. It does not cover public sector workers. But we are very fortunate in Connecticut to have Kanosha which mimics federal OSHA for all public sector municipal and state workers in Connecticut. And OSHA is a law that basically says every worker has a right to a workplace free of recognized hazards. And uh, so it's an opportunity for us to remind people that thousands of workers die from occupational illnesses, thousands die from occupational traumas, and we need to do better to make sure that all these workers go home to their families every day. Um, well said. And of course, uh, we don't have the current statistics for 2020, but uh, when those statistics come out next year, sadly, we will have uh, many more workers who die because of the uh, coronavirus, the novel coronavirus. Yeah, unfortunately, this is a challenge we have every year of trying to identify all the workers who uh, faced a hazard on the job and didn't go home. Uh, every year, it's a challenge for me. I scour the internet. I talk to union locals. I do information requests to state and uh, federal agencies to try to find out all of the fatalities. They're all not in one place. And I've got to be honest with you. I'm going to be shocked if I find too many SARS-CoV-2 victims next year because it's an occupational illness. And those are even harder to find evidence of, of workers that have faced this. Interesting. Um... Mike, can you talk to us a little bit about the work you're doing at Connecticut in, in light of uh, not just the pandemic, but in terms of promoting worker safety? Well, right now, it seems to be uh, all coronavirus all the time. Um, and, and to add on to what Steve just said, it's going to be hard to prove that you, even if you were exposed at work, did you actually contract the disease at work? 
I already saw some emails that some of the states are denying workers' comp claims already for people that got sick and feel that they got the disease at work. So that's going to be a big fight going forward that the Kashas will all be involved in is trying to get people benefits under the uh, workers' compensation. Yeah, we've been working on, um, I know the Connecticut AFL-CIO and a lot of affiliates have been working on getting a, a presumptive uh, workers' compensation so that um, workers don't have to um, keep going back and forth with appeals to their claims. They can get benefits faster for any coronavirus injuries they receive from being on the job. Um, but I was interested to know, um, Mike, how you got involved with Connecticut. Um, I'm assuming a lot of people, you know, do get involved in this type of work with worker safety because they've experienced something or they know somebody that has um, been injured. So I was wondering if you can tell us how you started to get involved. So I was a welder and a union steward for the Boilermakers as part of the Metal Trades Council at General Dynamics in 1986. I had been working there since 74. <clears throat> and uh, shortly after the 4th of July weekend, a young man whose dad had got him a job there for the summer to cut grass his uh, maintenance supervisor unlocked a cage where the electricity comes in to feed the facility, about 13,800 volts, I believe, and uh, put the young man in there with no training and a weed whacker, and he went off to make a phone call. And he came too close to the transformers, and he was electrocuted. So a day or two later, my boss decided that I needed to not be a regular union steward anymore. He needed to put me on a health and safety committee. So that started my career in safety, and I've been participating in it ever since. Around 19, early 87, Panetta Kosh held a 40-hour training for health and safety committee members. It was called Train the Trainer back then. And I took that course. That's how I got to know the folks at Panetta Kosh. And I volunteered for them from 87 until 98 when I became an employee. I've been teaching safety classes ever since. Hmm. Interesting. That's great. <laughs> Um, and our guests are Steve Schrag and Mike Fitz from Connecticut. This is Larry Dorman and Renee Hamill from Council 4 AFSME. You're listening to Council 4 Unplugged. And Steve, I'm going to read you something which, uh, well, part, part of this gets me a little bit upset. So um, the AFL-CIO does a report called the Toll of Neglect, but the Department of Labor figures are so are outdated. So the most recent year for which they were tabulating uh, fatalities and illnesses and disease caused by a person's occupation. So in 2017, that's all three years ago, uh, there were 5,147 workers killed on the job and an estimated 50,000 um, deaths each year that are attributed to occupational diseases. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, it, it's three years old, so those numbers, as you said earlier, have, have worsened. Um, but those are still alarming numbers, nonetheless. Yeah, I, I, I always use the comparison that if we had as many plane crashes as, as workers that die on the job, hundreds of people dying in a plane crash, if we had five of those in a month, people would be up in arms. We have more than that who die in workplaces every year. The problem is their, their disasters are individual disasters, not a collective one. And so people don't pay attention to them the way they deserve to. And as you said, the numbers are undercounted. Every year, every year when I collect up the numbers in Connecticut, um, I find fatalities that the Department of Labor and the Worker Comp Commission doesn't find. And it's because they all don't, because everything falls through the cracks. All these different agencies have their own silos 
and they don't talk to each other. And it's a serious problem. We've tried to raise this as a legislative solution in the past, and we'll try to raise it again. And that is make the Department of Labor, Worker Comp Commission, Con OSHA, Federal OSHA, work together to come up with some actual statistics about how many people who died on the job. Uh, every one of these is a disaster, not just for the worker, not just for their family, but for their coworkers. When a worker dies on the job, there are there is collateral damage. The workers that work around that person are changed because they know that one of their coworkers died and they know that it might've been them. Yeah, and it, it just seems uh, it just seems so unacceptable that we we continue to have these conversations, Steve um, and Mike and, and Renee every year um, about what's happening. So, uh, Renee, I think you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I'm looking at some statistics uh, from the AFL CIO, and um, they said 275 U.S. workers die each day from hazardous working conditions. Um, and they also said in 2017, 5,147 working people were killed on the job and about 95,000 died from occupational diseases. So, so what are these? Keep going. No, go ahead. Steve. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, so if we had a plane crash every day, don't you think people would be up in arms? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if I could weigh in on the uh, occupational disease part of that, that number is just their best guess. That's, mm -hmm. that's they got no way to really quantify that. There's nobody tracking things back. Um, if, if you work at a factory, we had a, a factory here in Connecticut where we had some a, a brain cancer cluster a few years back. You probably read about it. And uh, hundreds of people, at least a couple hundred people had a rare brain cancer. It all worked at the one facility. And that was just from one of the union reps at that place that happened to be at an outing where a couple of widows were talking about how odd it was that their husband died of this rare cancer. And she started snooping into it and found it by the time they were done over 200 people. They couldn't really connect the dots to figure out if that was the case, that it was really work related. But you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out if one out of 250,000 people gets this rare cancer and there's 200 from more workplace, there's probably something there that caused it. And there's nobody going back. You retire and go to Florida or Arizona or whatever, and you die of cancer. There's nobody connecting the dots to go back and try to figure out what you were exposed to in your workplace years ago that could have caused it. So that number is probably about, it's probably four or five times higher than that if they really were doing the work. And therein lies the challenge is that we're talking about workers who have died on the job. We need to also be focusing on how to protect workers who have yet to die on the job. And we have been struggling to try to get a standard from the federal government, from OSHA, to protect healthcare workers from airborne pathogens. We have been struggling to get this since the early 1990s with multi-drug resistant TB. We struggled this over SARS back in 2001, avian flu, H1N1, Ebola, and Zika. And here we are today still trying to struggle to get a standard to protect healthcare workers the way we protect all workers from bloodborne pathogens. Currently, there are, have been attempts at the federal government to put this in one of the, the uh, federal legislation doing relief. And every single time, Mitch McConnell and the Trump administration have opposed it. They have said, no, we don't want to protect healthcare workers. If we had that standard in place, healthcare workers would have the proper PPE, they would have the proper protections, 
and at least we'd have a better fighting chance in how to make sure they all go home safely. Yeah. Um, Mike, I had a question for you. Um, another statistic that the AFLCL reported was that there's one ocean specter for every 79,000 workers. Um, do you think that if there was more resources that are put into OSHA, that this would help with uh, protecting workers on the job? Well, definitely more compliance officers and, and a directive from the top to be more aggressive in enforcement would absolutely help. I mean, OSHA's job is not to, there's plenty of employers that are good employers that care about their workers. OSHA's job is to get after the bad guys and gals. And, and more compliance officers and stronger enforcement would certainly help with that. And by the way, the statistics we were talking about before don't include our friends, family, and loved ones that are in the military. They're on the job when they die, too. So that number would be higher if we counted them. Absolutely. Renee, the Absolutely. one thing I would say about the number of OSHA inspectors, the, the challenge is it isn't just there aren't enough of them, and there clearly are not. The challenge is, is that many of the regulations they have to enforce are outdated. Most of OSHA standards, which were adopted en masse back in 1972, are from the 1960s. Most of those standards have not been kept up to date with the hazards that workers face on the job today, whether it's workplace violence, whether it's, as I said, airborne pathogens, whether it's indoor air quality. These are, these are quote unquote, new hazards that have no standards. And so OSHA's ability, even with more inspectors, would be limited because they don't have the authority to go after employers who violate worker safety. And so, Steve and Mike, what you're really talking about here is uh, we need a much stronger political and legislative response and effort if we're if this country is going to get serious about protecting its workers. Absolutely. Big time. If if you just go with chemical exposures, for example, along the lines of what Steve just said, when OSHA started, they they had to pull it together kind of quick, and they took recommended standards from the 60s, as Steve said, the 1968 American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienist Standards that were only recommended back then, and they adopted those to get going, and then they thought they'd update them as they went. They tried to update them in 1989, and that was challenged in court. They tried to update 211 of them, and it was kicked back in 92, the judgment, and put them back where they were. So they've only updated chemical exposure standards on about 50 chemicals since OSHA started, give or take a few. And when I'm teaching this class, when I teach the workers' rights class to young people, high school or just out of high school, I'll generally talk to them about if they've ever seen old movies from when you know, back around. So if you if you take the 1968 standards, some of the research was 20 years old then. So if you take old movies from the late 40s and early 50s, if you make a phone call, the operator had to plug a wire in from one place to another to connect the phone call. And I generally hold up my cell phone and say, we've made a little progress in this area, haven't we? So if we've got the technology to do all this with the phone, and we have the technology to make it safer for our workers, but we're using our exposures for workers based on science that's from back then, from the almost World War II. It's ridiculous. I do hazardous materials training. And when I talk to our members, we talk about how there's more than 50,000 chemicals in commercial use in this country. Of those 50,000 chemicals, 244 of them have gone through what's called peer-reviewed testing. That is, they tested to see what the health effects were, and then other people who know what they're doing double-check their, their statistics. Of those 244 chemicals that went through peer-reviewed testing, 
144 of them are known to cause cancer. Of the ones that we know that cause cancer, only 53 of them have any kind of OSHA regulation at all. And of the 53 that have OSHA regulations, only 21 of them have protections for workers from a cancerous nature of those chemicals. That means there are 91 chemicals that we know that cause cancer. We have research that show it for which workers have no protection. There are so many holes in the system, it's hard to keep track of them. I always tell people the two biggest obstacles to making workers safe is what I call the two fear factors. Employers' OSHA citations are pathetically small, so they're not afraid of OSHA. And every worker I know is sometime, at some time or another is afraid to raise their voice, the fear of retaliation by their supervisor if they raise a health and safety concern. I can't tell you how many state employees I've talked to in the last two months who want to tell me on the QT about a problem with protecting them from uh, SARS-CoV-2, but don't want to put their name on it. It's frightening how frightened workers are. Right. And, uh, you know, that is an obstacle to, to overcome. You are listening to Council 4 Unplugged. I'm Larry Dorman with my co-host, our co-host here at Council 4, Renee Hamill. And we are happy to be back with a virtual podcast. And uh, our guests are Steve Schrag and Mike Fitz from the Connecticut Council on Occupational Safety and Health. Steve or Mike, um, for both of you, just wanted to get your thoughts of how has COVID-19 changed the debate and the discussion about protecting workers? Well, as I said, we continue to try to get a standard to protect workers and we still fail to get it. It really reflects the fact that the American Hospital Association has more power than unions. They have they have stood in the way of an airborne pathogen standard since the early 1990s, and they can stand in the way of that right now. This whole discussion over whether people should be using a cloth mask or an N95, that's not a new discussion. What, what we should be talking about, though, is N100. Workers should have better protection to their lungs, not, not a 95% protection, but a 97.9% protection, which is what an N100 is. We, we face a constant struggle by business who oppose protecting workers' health. Until unions are stronger, until you working people are stronger, we're going to continue to face that kind of challenge. We've, of course, also seen you know, within the state, um, uh, many state and municipal employers have been, uh, state agencies and municipal employers in Connecticut um, uh, have been caught unprepared by this crisis. So, for example, we had asked me to represent correctional officers and other frontline uh, prison workers. And um, hundreds of uh, employees have uh, tested positive for COVID-19 and hundreds of inmates have also tested positive. It's it's truly a toxic working environment and that agency is clearly unprepared. So I think those are some of the lessons we also need to uh, uh, learn from as we try to hold employers, public or private sector accountable for, for how workers are protected. I mean, the, the, the challenge is what you just said. How do you hold them accountable? Well, and if I could weigh in on that, the frustrating Please part do. of it, too, that, that I observe every day on TV, it makes me crazy, is a lot of misinformation out there. People are being led to believe that if they put a rag around their face, that they're safe. And, and these homemade masks, those and the surgical masks don't protect the wearer at all. They help knock down anything that I exhale, whether I aspirate something out, if I cough, 
or what comes out of my mouth when I talk, they help knock it down so that it doesn't go hopefully six feet or more so that the social distancing can work. But none of those protect me. The, the first level that protects me is at least an N95 as the wearer. But you listen to the rhetoric and it makes it sound like if you go outside with a, with a rag taped on your face, that you're good to go and you're not. That That's just helping you not infect others as much as you would if you had nothing on, but it gives you no protection at all. And people think they're safe wearing this stuff. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up, Mike, because I do think that is um, a large misconception out there that the masks are to um, not are not protecting you per se, they're helping to protect other people. That's why you're wearing them. But we still have to keep the social distancing and uh, we should be concerned that sometimes these masks can give people a false sense of protection. Um, I wanna bring um, us back to the presumptive workers compensation that I was referring to before. Um, what you mentioned is a, is a really widespread problem is that um, a lot of workers on the job that will fall ill to uh, COVID-19 will be filing um, workers' compensation claims and um, it's an industry-wide practice that their claims will be denied. Um, so we are working in a coalition with other unions to make sure that um, when they do fall ill, um, they can apply for these benefits and um, we can assume that they got it from the job. Um, so we wanted to know, what, um, you know, what do you think about that as um, a solution to protect uh, the workers? What if they do um, contract the virus? Well, they, they should be they should be considered workers' comp. If they're essential workers and they have to go to work, whether they're a doctor, a nurse, or a first responder, or they work at a grocery store or whatever, wherever they are that they had to work, if they were exposed to it there and they got the disease, they should assume that that's where it came from and they're going to fight it. But you know what? If it was me, I'd say, okay, go ahead. Don't pay the workers' comp. I'll get my lawyer and I'll sue you now. As a third-party lawsuit that I got it from your workplace. I don't know how many lawsuits it will take before they'll wake up and they'll decide that, you know what, if we just pay workers' comp, we can't be sued. Let's just pay the workers' comp and the health insurance and, and the, you know, pay for the health care. I think the employers would be better off if they just paid workers' comp. But we'll my, see how my, it plays my, out. My experience with workers and workers' comp is that at every turn, employers will find a reason not to pay workers' comp. I had a member who worked in a nursing home. There was a resident there who had tuberculosis. My member got tuberculosis. The employer tried to say that she got it from the subways. When we proved it was the same kind of TB as the resident, they tried to say that my member gave it to the resident. When I worked at an industrial bakery, we put metal pans in the machines for the dough and workers would get carpal tunnel syndrome and tensinovitis. And the doc company doctor would say, you're turning the television on and off too much. They will find every excuse possible not to pay workers worker comp. It is a very what, difficult what, system to get through. What's going to make it hard for them to deny it is if you take one of the meat packing plants, for example. That I see on the, on the TV the other night, one of them's got over 100 cases of people that all work in the one plant. It'd be hard for the employer to say that it wasn't running rampant around there with that many people got the disease. Yeah, this is why we need action on that because, um, like you said, it is going to be hard to prove. But um, we're hoping that the governor will come through um, with an executive order on this. Um, so I had uh, another question. Um, you know, with businesses um, having so much money and power and making it really difficult for workers to speak out when they see violations and 
they see instances uh, where their health and safety is at risk. Um, you know, what advice would you give to a worker who um, is worried about speaking out, but, um, you know, wants to protect themselves and their coworkers? Well, the first thing I would say is don't ever act alone. You're, 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 you have multiple protections if you act with other workers. All of those teachers that two years ago went on strike, none of them had the right to strike. None of them had the legal right to do anything that they were doing. But because they did it with other people, they were protected. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I would say is what I tell all my members, go down to CVS and pick up one of those old-fashioned composition books that have string in the binding and keep a daily diary of what the supervisor says and does and who was there. Because if you have to challenge them because they retaliated, the more documentation you have, the better. And you've been listening to Council for Unplugged. I want to thank our guests, Mike Fitz and Steve Schrag from Connecticut. And uh, Mike, I think you just have a, a few parting words for us. Yeah, on behalf of all of us, I'd just like to thank all essential workers, no matter what job they have, for what they do. Without them, we couldn't go on with even the parts of our life that are still possible. So thank you to all of them. Well said, and I want to thank both of you for the fight you do every day on behalf of workers and worker safety. I want to thank uh, my co-host, Renee Hamill at Council 4, and this is Larry Dorman at Council 4, and we will see you soon on another Council 4 Unplugged podcast. Thanks. As always, thanks for listening to our Council 4 Unplugged podcast. You can find us on all major social platforms by searching for Council 4 AFSCME. Our website is council4.org. My name's Larry Dorman, and you've been unplugged. <laughs>